Hi, my name is Riley Rosendahl, and I am the founder of Iowa Prairie Bison, and you are listening to the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Nick and I have many regrets in our time working together. Uh, I'd say we're probably like beyond, like we're on the positive side of like things we've celebrated over things that we've regretted. (laughs) It's in the green, but like barely. In the black is is the the, is the financial term, I think. But, um, one of the biggest regrets we can never get over is I'm try I can never remember what podcast we were heading back from. I kind of think it was Iowa Cover Crop. And we were coming no, back down cuz it was snowing. Yeah, but that was that was like a win you know, that was winter time frame and I But it was 60 degrees. Yeah, maybe yeah. Do, do do you guys remember what podcast did we come out with in the winter where we would have been in northern Iowa? Yeah, we we'll have to we'll have to look back at the record. But Shoot point us an email being, if you know. Yeah. Point being, <clears throat> we came through uh, a neighboring town to where we're at. In fact, I just realized the other day that while I'm standing out in the field on a really clear day, I can see Sully pretty clearly. Yeah. From our field. Yeah, it's not that far away. Um, but we were driving through that town, and uh, if I remember, maybe you don't want me to pinpoint where you're at too much. Uh, Riley, exactly. Riley, Riley's a Riley's a fellow uh, a deer hunter, so he probably likes to keep his his spots pretty well. A secret. little bit secret, yeah, yeah. But um, if you come by a bison from him, though, you'll probably have to find out where he is because you know those things are kind Unless, of hard to move. Are you move like around. meeting people in the middle of the night under a Walmart like spotlight? Just like, just like dealing with a bison, bison. On a leash. Yeah, with a full bison. I can't say. It's, oh, okay. it's privileged information. <laughs> she has a bison on a leash standing there. <laughs> this is yours. <laughs> oh, but no, anyways, uh, we were driving through uh, Riley's neck of the woods, we'll say. And I, I think we were going to get ice cream or something. We're like, we're getting ice cream. And, and we we're just kind of cruising. We do that a lot. Yeah, we do we're it too much. We're going to get ice cream. We do it too much. Just look at us. But but anyways, uh, we, we're we on our way. We're all excited about that. And we drive past Riley's place. And all the bison are out there. And they're like frisky. I mean, they're like doing a little sparring. The bulls are. They're like jumping around a little bit and chasing each other around kind of. And there's just these two bulls that are just right there by the fence. And they're, they're uh, locked up. And they're pushing each other around like the quintessence of uh what you expect you know like everybody thinks of the majesty of a of a bison you know these two bison are doing it and we're driving and it is snowing like beautiful big snowflakes and uh like one of those like perfectly overcast days where all the colors are just yeah. contrasted so perfectly with the snow. No white light from the sun. Yeah, and, and we're we're driving by the bison. Like I said, they're they're doing their part, and we're just kind of like, hmm, yeah, that's beautiful. And then I was thinking we need to turn around right now 
We need to step on the brakes right now, go back and get this picture, this video, whatever. I mean, this is like National Geographic quality footage right now. Everything's lined up. And our iPhone 8s would have been great at taking <laughs> <the> video. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we didn't. We just kept heading on towards ice cream. And since that time, I don't know, maybe once a month we'll bring it up and be like, dude, we missed the biggest opportunity back there when we drove past those bison. Mm. But um, we, we uh, anyway, so all that kind of forgot about. Nick's like, oh, yeah, I know that guy, that kind of thing. And then I go to the North American Prairie Conference, and I requested to meet the field trip at the location we were going because it's right close to Hoxie. And it's like, man, I don't want to drive all the way out to Des Moines area and then turn around and come right back. And there was another guy sitting there wait, waiting to meet there, too. And I was like, oh, must be somebody else from close by. Well, we both pull in with a tour bus and everything else. And and uh, I think Riley struck up a conversation with me. I think he saw my Hoxie hat was what it was. And yeah, it was. The, the Hoxie hat was a dead giveaway. And uh, we just started talking. He's like, yeah, I, I own some bison. And it clicked with me. It's like. That's the guy who gives me my biggest regret, my biggest professional regret. He feels deep pain in his heart every time he sees you, Riley. I'm almost honored, but at the same time, you know, I, yeah, that's, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah, that's on us. <laughs> yeah. Tough luck. Ice cream, the ice cream was still good, but. Was it worth it though? It was not worth would it. You have, would you give up all the ice cream you've eaten so far? Like, would you give up our culture of eating ice cream? In order to take that picture, like just like our thing, where hey, let's go get a nestle yeah. type thing. Uh, we need to tell Riley what a nestle is too. Oh, he knows, you know, right? I'm not sure I know what a nestle uh, is. I think we've talked about it, but <sighs> it's so at at Zippin and and Linville, they make homemade cookies and then put their ice cream in between it. Um, oh, yeah. So it's just a homemade yeah, ice cream. If you're sandwich. driving that way on your way back, they're to, like. Two dollars and seventy cents, and they're the size of a car tire. They're huge. Yeah, and I might have to make a detour for yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, especially on a day like today. But yeah, you know that's a good question, Nick. But I think that picture was just like one of those things that would have stuck with us the rest of our lives had we had it. Yeah, maybe. And I suppose yeah. the ice cream will too. We meet the a, president just in a much more unsightly <laughs> manner. <laughs> ice cream also stick. Yeah, it was just one. It was one everlasting for a different everlasting, and the everlasting we got was uh, thigh chub where we could have met uh, Joe Biden yes. for our for our picture of the year. Man, I, I oh yeah. man, yeah. So it was a great it was a great picture. It was great to meet Riley, and we just wanted to get him on the podcast because Riley is doing what we talk about all of the time and Riley's awesome. He's like really cool to hang out with. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. That, that a blush. That was, <laughs> that, that was the thing when I was talking with Riley, you know, we start the, the bison thing was cool enough. Well, then we start talking about hunting and then we start talking about how he's got domestic beetles, which I have long looked into doing. I just have never like totally jumped into do yeah, it. That so that sounds like, Hey, don't go near that neighbor. They got, Dermested He's beetles. got dermested beetles. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Know, I've always wondered, Riley, have you ever like feared, you know, like what if I was in here working with these beetles and like I passed out and my face landed in the tank or my arm landed in the tank and I woke up and all my flesh was gone? Funny enough, I actually looked into that before I got them. I was like, do they bite? Is this dangerous? And they were like, no, no. As long as you're alive, the beetles just kind of, you know, crawl on you like beetles would. So, 
but there was an irrational fear there to start. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> that's horrifying. What are what did Dermested Beetles Nick's quickly do doing a Google search right now? I'm not. I will not look that up. So I have those images plastered <laughs> so, in my brain. So taxidermists, uh, there's different ways to get meat off of the carcass that's brought into them, right? And so, um, and by carcass, usually it's just the the skull, right? And the, and the cape, which is the hide up, you know, basically back to mid back and down uh, below the the front shoulders. And there's still a skull in there with meat on it, though. And they got to get rid of that meat now, especially if a guy is just getting like a called a European mount or a Euro mount, where some people call them freedom mounts where you just have a uh, skull with the antler still attached. You don't have like the, you know, the hide and the, the foam underneath of it to make it look like it was still, you know, a living thing or like what it was when it was alive. And you want that bone to be very clean. Otherwise it stinks. It looks trashy, you know, dingy people see it. Like, Didn't you of, have an antler that like gnats, birth inside of it or something yeah, i found this giant antler that was old and all these flies hatched out of it Ugh. but but anyways he brought it inside and, and, and his wife made him sleep outside <laughs> four straight nights yeah i soaked it in a, a five gallon bucket of bleach for i think two or three weeks and that that did the trick but anyways the the uh, turns oh. out living things can't handle two <laughs> straight weeks of bleach <laughs> crazy but uh no, so anyways, the dermastids, they clean up the skulls and uh, or other bones. And uh, they actually, I think, probably do the best job. Other t- The other method is boiling, usually, right? I'm not even aware of another one, but boiling and then bleaching. But uh, boiling, you got to pick all that meat off. And you're not going to be able to get like into all those sinuses and all the different cavities of the head near as well as a tiny little beetle that like sees all that as food right so the the beetles in my opinion do the best work is that is that accurate riley i've heard that guys guys either swear by dermestid beetles getting most of the meat or the boiling method there's also a method called cold water maceration which is just where you would place a skull into a container of water at room temperature basically depending on your climate and the flesh comes off slowly that's a longer process but it's similar where you're not losing um, those bones the potential for loss when you're talking about power washing it goes mm, up yeah. rapidly because that kind of pressure and that's stuff right. i forgot about the pressure washing method too yeah the pressure washing and stuff is really rough on like nasal bones and white tails and stuff mm-hmm. like that are actually surprisingly fragile underneath all the cartilage so dermestid beetles do a really good job of getting getting everywhere in the skull and then leaving it with only the bone, which is what you're looking for, obviously. Mm-hmm. Man, that yeah. is wild. How big are these beetles? Um, would you say box elder bug size, maybe? No, even smaller. Even smaller um, than that? I would say a dermestid beetle is maybe like a quarter of a penny, even. They're pretty small beetles. Okay. Um, like fully grown, even. it's. What about the uh, the invasive uh, orange ladybugs that we have compare them in size to those i would say they're about the same size as a ladybug um when they're fully grown but um the funny thing is the misconception that people always have is they'll look at a colony and they'll think oh well i see a lot of big beetles in there so they're eating a lot of meat but really the 
um, most of the meat eating is done by the larvae, like they're young. So Mm. if you see a lot of adult beetles, that's great because they're probably reproducing, but um, they're kind of putting on a show, really. The the smaller beetles are the ones that are actually eating a lot of the flesh because they're growing. They're trying to... um, I love, become how, a big I love how he said that eating the flesh. Eating the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> that is so awesome. It's disturbing. <laughs> yeah, no, Nick, no one else is with me on that. <laughs> Nick, you want to go get some ice cream? <laughs> no. Oh man. So when when these larvae are hatching, like what are these um tanks like? Do you just then put a bison skull in the tank? You just set it in there and call it good? So the that's that's usually the conception. What you'll make is some sort of chamber for them to stay in, and then you want to keep the climate. It's usually sixty to eighty degrees. Um, they're kind of finicky. They like a nice average kind of climate, and you put your project in. But the most difficult thing is making sure that the project isn't too big, because you they like to eat meat that is a very certain consistency, like kind of almost like jerky-like, kind of. Not Mm. super dry, but drier. So if you put in a bunch of like really wet meat and it starts kind of turning, then they won't want it nearly as bad. What kind of diva nature is this? (laughs) It's really strange. Platter, and I would like it a very specific kind. So do you kind of like let them sit out in the sun for a few days or something before you... Usually what I'll do is um, freeze them. That way there's no... Uh, host um, or uh, how would you put it some other beetle species like to um, get into a skull and then lay their eggs in the hopes that dermestids will show up because their larvae eat dermestids okay so when i would take on a project or something like that i would actually freeze it because that would kill out any um, parasites that might be sitting in that skull yeah and then i defrost it and then once it kind of like, you know when you leave a piece of meat in the fridge and it starts to kind of slowly dry out? Yeah. Like, almost that kind of consistency. Because yeah. um, if you let it sit in the sun too much, then flies and stuff will try and get to it. And that's just Nick another Nick is totally thing. captivated right now, everyone. Dude. Just just looking at his face is so entertaining. He's just like, totally... This is... But this is very interesting. So, it's so, a whole different world. I mean, it is. And, and, and it's so interlinked, which is fascinating. Like, all these species depending yeah. on each other. Uh, what it reminds me of is I had a roommate that had a snake. <laughs> he had a roommate that was like a domestic beetle. <laughs> <laughs> he would just eat rotten meat. No, so he would he w- he had this snake and that was his pet. But then he also had pet rats. Oh, that he would then feed to his snake. Did you like your roommate? Nick? So he's awesome guy. Yeah, no, he's a cool dude. Shout out to Ruben. Mm, and uh, so it was like he had to take care of rats to feed him the snake, and and that's what it seems like. You have to you have to have like one form of life form just to help support this other form of life form, which is how life works, but it also seems like more work uh, to have these. Be- Wouldn't it be just easier to use room temperature water and soak your skulls? Yes, but it can take longer. Um, oh, how so, long does this does it take with the beetles? Uh, a really, really productive colony of beetles can clean a skull off, a deer skull, and I'd say maybe two days but your mileage wow. will vary because it depends on how clean your skull is when it goes in how what about an unhealthy like small population it depends on your temperature conditions the moisture and stuff 
and then if your project starts turning and they don't really they're not really yeah. interested in it so there's a lot of different small at what point do you consider a colony failed like if it takes them a week it's like oh that's too long the funny thing is with dermestids a colony is never really failed until it's completely infested by like some other beetle that preys upon dermestids hmm. you can have a small colony and bring it back up in population it's just a time thing um so it really it kind of comes down to knowing where your colony's at and if a project's too big for them you wait try and work your way up with smaller projects a lot of people who are really really deeply into dermestids i'm just kind of uh dipping my toe per se they usually do like beaver skulls coyote mm. skulls smaller stuff to work their colonies up mm. Or if a colony's kind of in a lull, then they'll give them uh, something they can handle. So did you take classes on this at like the local library? YouTube. YouTube. <laughs> Strictly YouTube. I kind of went down a rabbit hole. You could ask my wife. Oh, you know, man. It's just, I went down a rabbit hole. Definitely. So, so you're married. What did your wife think of the bison and the beetles thing? She's very supportive. Um, I'm very lucky in that regard. I don't know. She never says she disapproves, which is wonderful. But sometimes I'll tell her something. I'll be like, you know what I want to do? I'm going to buy some beetles through the mail. I'm going to, I'm going to mail a guy a check, and then some beetles are going to come to the house. And you can see, like, kind of, you know, like, she's like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. You know, it's supportive, but it's like, okay, all right, you know. Yeah, there's she's some, working there's some with hesita- what she's got. There's some reservations. She is very, she's very patient. I'll give her that. Man. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, you're clearly a passionate guy, someone who's not afraid to take on a new challenge, and and I like that about you. That was one of the the first things I noticed about you when we uh, when I first met you. Um, and uh, man, I'm glad we got to spend some time with the Dermestids. I, I I have another podcast. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to come on that podcast just to do a whole domestic episode i would be happy to to lend you my limited knowledge (laughs) i've actually been seeking that out for like a couple years uh having having someone on my other well you have not spent enough time on youtube then well yeah yeah, you could just learn it yourself no 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 no. well yeah i want to learn for myself but i think most people are just fascinated with it because it's kind of like this everyone's like aware of it but they don't know much about it until they meet a guy like riley so it's, Caitlin, if you're listening, he's yeah. he's coming for the Beatles. Oh, she he's knows she it. knows I want some domestics. Oh, I talked man. about doing it with uh, uh with Fritch. Uh, we talked about getting a colony going together and and uh, doing some. But man, as not an avid, I got hunter, too many. I have too many other things going on. Though, it's just like a right new now. world to me. Yeah, it's, it, but it's cool though, isn't it? Like yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I've been fighting um, uh, earwigs at my house. And it's horrible, man. Earwigs are the worst. Mon- and they Mon- bite. Monetize those little suckers. <laughs> <laughs> Find a way to, to make it happen. Maybe they clean people's earwax for them, you know? They can go no. Crawl, <laughs> crawl in there. Dude, ear- earwigs Dude, are the people, freakiest. Dude, people thing. order coffee that is like... Uh, has bugs crapped eating. out by cats you yeah. know you ever hear yeah, that that's stuff? true yeah, i like mean people most... people would definitely go get your ear wig ear there's cleaning. a market you just have to find it that's yeah. right <laughs> i, might have I to, don't like, want to talk to that <laughs> might have to take that show on the road a little bit go to like vegas <laughs> yeah i really want earwigs to clean my ears out <laughs> sir please step away you from know where me. they would do that they would do that in portland you know what i mean like oh dude i love i love the way go up to go up to portland oregon they'd be like yeah sure yeah i mean that's where i learned to not use deodorant Hear, hear me out before everyone just thinks I'm crazy. For whatever reason, I, I do sweat quite a bit. 
but it doesn't smell unless I'm nervous. If I'm nervous, my sweat smells real bad, and my wife will be like, "You need a deodorant today." That's but I haven't. Put that's because you on. have a different type of uh, sweat gland that uh, that activates during times of stress. Ah, called the apocrine. The more you know, apocrine. A p o c r i n e. So here's glands. could dermestid beetles eat that sweat? I don't know. I have no use for I them. I don't know. I have none. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But, sorry. But anyways, yeah, yeah. Let's bring this one back back around here. This is this has been a great podcast so far. Um, so Riley, the probably the first thing that would strike everybody, and the thing that kind of struck me when I learned about your work with bison is your age. You're not a geezer, man. You haven't been. Not yet. I'm working on it. You haven't been, you know, in the farming business independently or, or whatever you're, you know, for decades, like most people think of when you find out someone's running a herd of anything, really. Right. But so, so you kind of stand out that, and I know that day that we went on that field trip, we met another guy who's doing a younger guy, which we should get him on the podcast sometime. Uh, does goats and he's he's uh you know pretty young guy i'd say well he's probably close to my age which isn't super young i know nick but but you're gonna um, have your first grandkid here soon aren't you no i'm not having any grandkids (laughs) but uh so it's it sticks out though because youth is not really associated with ag anymore in as far as being an operator or you know making calling shots about livestock stuff like that so how you know what is your family's background in agriculture and and how did you get in at a young age sure so my family has been in agriculture since around the 1920s um and it was originally kind of a little bit of everything from what i've asked around what have been told you know by grandparents stuff like that sure uh there was a dairy portion of the operation all kinds of rotated crops i think there was a portion where they might have done some sugarcane stuff really um but that is a little murky and so they kind of dabbled in a lot of the various different crops of the day obviously after the 40s and stuff like that you started seeing the changeover like everywhere in iowa where Corn and soybeans became the dominant force. Yeah. And so I would say now we're pretty much row crop, and then we've always had some cattle running around, and we got out of that a couple of years ago. And then six years ago, we kind of started dipping our toes back in. I came to my dad with a wild hair idea. I was like, well, we have this pasture, so what are we doing with it? And we were just renting it out at the time. And I was like, you know what? I'll, I want to do something with that 40 acres. And he was like, okay, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, let's just buy some Buffalo. And man, where, where did, where, where did you see the, the Buffalo? Like, where'd you get that idea? So I would probably credit that to the, I believe it's called the Neil Smith national wildlife refuge. Correct. Yep. Yes. They actually, we had a podcast today drop with their director. Uh, biologist. Biologist. Karen Visti Sparkman. Yeah, she's fun, but. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of where it got its um, start at, I would say. I went there as a kid because it was, I think it was opened in 93, 95, something yeah, like that. Yep. And so going there as a kid on like school field trips and stuff, 
it always seemed super weird because I always had a fun time out there. And then you'd look around and you'd be like, okay, this is really cool, but like, what is this? You know, because yeah. growing up being surrounded by just corn and beans, yeah. Yeah. you're like, okay, well, I was corn and beans. And then you go 20 miles and it's all of a sudden there's this prairie world with buffalo and elk and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that and yeah that's a good way to describe it it's more like a kind of a western thing so it Pr- was, prairie was a place to go not a place to be kind of yeah thing. it was like a destination it wasn't like what could be possible where you are right yeah yeah that's a, yeah i've never thought of that you know we went on a prairie field trip so i grew up in illinois and this would have been when my family was living in northern illinois and actually nick i've wondered if the prairie that I went and visited was uh Belbel because, oh. because uh, we lived like 45 minutes from there yeah, where my school was and, near Rockford. Right. And um, so it could have been there, but we went to a prairie somewhere. They had a prairie center kind of like Neil Smith. And like I have, you know, that was in second grade. So I have just a few memories of that. And it was very much so, you know, we learned all about the prairie, all, all, uh, I don't know, maybe we did like a two, three week unit on it, reading, you know, kid stories from it, doing poetry on the prairie, learning prairie songs and stuff. And then, all right, you know, it's the culmination of this. We're going to go to the prairie. And it's exactly like you just said. It's like, this is a place we're going to. You can't have it around you, you know. Exactly. Prairie world, like you said. Yeah, that is so true. That's a great point. It's funny enough, I I wasn't sure how far back my roots kind of started in this. And after we bought Buffalo, um, Bison, however you want to call them, they're interchangeable just for a PSA. Yeah. Um, I started getting like, my mom would send me a text message and she'd be like, oh, I found this photo in an album. It's you standing in front of the taxidermy buffalo at neil smith when i was like five you know you think like okay so this idea didn't come from nowhere you know stuff like that makes you think so Hmm. yeah so when you you know first found out like you know man these things used to roam free in in iowa do you remember like roughly how old you were when you kind of started learning that and did that kind of influence you and your decision down the road do you think i think i think it played a role i always kind of like wondered Growing up on a family farm where you can kind of like wander around, you know, it's the afternoon, you go outside mm-hmm. and you wander around, you go to like a creek and stuff and look at rocks, you know, what kids do outside. Yeah, yeah. And I always kind of wondered like what what it looked like, you know, before there was corn and beans, yeah. you know, there's nothing wrong with corn and beans, but I wanted to know like, oh, well, there was there tall grass here, you know, was this mm-hmm. a beaver dam, stuff like that. Little kind of things that made me wonder. And it turned into kind of a, um, kind of an obsession to almost wonder what there was, yeah. and figure mm-hmm. out kind of where we fit or where we were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's yeah. I've had those thoughts many times, and uh, it sounds like you had them much earlier than I did, though. Even you know, it's just from a young age started thinking about that stuff, and and uh, that's that's really cool. So, uh, you know, I heard. I heard somebody ask you while we were on that field trip, and I thought you gave them a really good answer. Um, they said, well, how did you start to, you know, how did you decide to start doing bison? We're kind of asking you that now, I suppose. But you said, uh, I had to. I had to do it. You know, what What did you mean really when, when you said that, when you said 
you you didn't really have in your mind you didn't have a choice this was something you had to do i felt kind of um like i had a really unique opportunity Hmm. I guess when I, when I step back, cause I did a bunch of research, I'm a chronic overthinker. So <laughs> like when I'm about to do something like Beatles and stuff, I looked it up. I read, you know, a million articles, stuff like that before I made the decision. So when I started considering whether or not I would raise bison, what that would look like, I started to wonder kind of like what, what that's going to mean for our operation as a family farm Mm -hmm. and is it something that's viable? And so I just did a ton of research and, um, it also kind of hit me that growing up on a family farm and being part of a large family, there wasn't anybody who was super interested in farming, you know, growing up, you think like, okay, well there's 20 kids in a family And if three of them are interested in farming, that's probably, you know, enough because everybody can kind of share the acres and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But growing up, I kept getting older and older and people weren't really super interested in farming. It was just kind of something that, you know, my dad did, my grandpa did, stuff like that. And so I always, I'd try and help out where I could. But when people started getting less and less interested and pursuing careers and stuff like that, I wondered like, what's going to happen to the farm? What's going to happen to this place that I really like, you know? And so I thought, well, if I'm not willing to be involved in it, this place that I really care about is not going to be the same. Mm. And so you were connected to it. I love how you worded that. It wasn't going to be the same because that is true. I think that's, I think that's a hidden truth that a lot of people don't anticipate. You know, when you lease out your ground, yes, you're still the landowner. Yes, you still have majority control. But there are things that you're going to be pressured to change. There's going to be things that are going to change that they don't really even have to ask you to change them. You know, just just a difference in farming practice. You know, maybe maybe you always uh, uh, did all your own spraying or you had... You know, you had the co-op come down and do it, and now they're hiring it out to an aerial guy, and now your house is, has got, you know, aerial sprayers turned around right above your house all the time, and you're wondering, is this something that I really want? Or uh, maybe uh, trees are getting cut down, maybe, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I think that that is part of a reality where we have so much farm ground. I think Nick said the stat on this once on the podcast. Uh, for Iowa, yeah, you did in a coffee time recently. The amount what of, was it? The amount of acres. I think it's the one where you're talking about land ownership, and you're talking about how much much of Iowa's land is owned by by um, people in like their seventies or something oh, yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. But I think then you talked about the stat where how much of Iowa's farmland is leased, and I think it was like wasn't it like fifty percent or I something think, like that? Yeah, over fifty percent. Like is not operated by the owner. Yeah, but it, but I did make a preface that a lot of that is leased to a close family member, like a son okay, or, okay. or a nephew. Okay, so so, I so it stays in the family then. Yeah, okay. a, a lot of it, but. A big chunk. I mean, obviously, we can just say anecdotally. A big but yeah, chunk I mean, it's not I, right. To the family, right? And and that brings about changes. And so I think you worded that very well. That if you wanted this place that was so special to you to remain as you liked it, you were gonna have to you were gonna have to personally be the one interacting with it. Yeah, and and not even just to keep things the same, like 
to to make things to even to change things for the better for the worse if sure. you if you're not involved or willing to take some initiative there it's it's hard because people will just sometimes they'll go to the easiest thing which is oh well i could try and do something or i could lease it you know leasing yeah. is a sure thing and it's it's yeah. hard because it depends on who you are and what access to resources yeah. and stuff you have but yeah, I figured I'm young. I can, if I can make a positive change or you know, at least keep some control of it, then that was going to be the best thing I could do. So, is your grandpa still around? Yeah. So yeah. him and your dad, do they farm row crop then around the bison? Yeah, they um, they farm row crop around the bison, and then because where we started was actually just a pasture that it's always it's pretty much always been pasture. I think. People tried to do corn and beans on it yeah. you know, back before there was a lot of like super high soil conservation and it just it just really wasn't working. It's really hilly and stuff yeah. like that. So it's always been a pasture and that's kind of where we started. So they, they farm around me and I lease off of them that way. Okay. So you don't help with any of the row crop? Yeah, I, okay. I help. Um, I help with uh, some of the conventional stuff. Uh, it just kind of depends on what I can do and yeah. where they're at and stuff like that. Cause so. you also work at the local locker, right? I, um, used to, work Oh, you at the used local to work locker. at yeah. local, um, which is cool that Sully even has a local yeah. locker. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I worked there and, um, processed, uh, local meat, which is, yeah, it's becoming a rarity, which is kind of sad. Yeah. It, yeah. That's what, I mean, that's what, uh, dad, you know, um, talks about all the time is I rem- my grandpa used to preach that he said you do not want these big giant corporations doing meat he said even if it's cheaper it's not better for you and not not just like health wise he's just saying like uh, for the economy for um, and then we were just talking to a really cool gentleman um, Tom Philpot which the episode would have already gone out by now by the time you guys listen to this but he is a I think the head researcher at the John Hopkins University for Center for a Livable Future. Isn't that such a wild title? That's a really that's a long but super cool title. Yeah, Center for a Livable Future and he was saying that um in human history uh consolidation of power of food um in in any regard uh is it just has not helped that civilization that it it was a part of. And uh I found that interesting. So, the point being back to a small local meat locker that is just really cool to see that they they have one yeah so i agree that you know and it's another thing where it's like now you're getting back to that old model of you know we talked about this before where you have you know everyone assumes that the midwest especially iowa all these oh look at all you know (laughs) dumb and dumber sure is fun mingling with all these laid-back country folk you know like uh this perception of uh Everyone's a farmer, you know, everyone is living on a farm. And uh, you, you could sum it up by saying all these little communities built on farming, you know, or, or yeah. built on farmers, sorry. They have now become communities built on farming, you know, instead of instead of having everyone that's coming and spending, spending their money in that local, local area being you know not everybody but a majority of them or even half of them being farmers doing that um very few are farmers that are doing that now and and many have have um have 
been pushed out by yeah. by the new models of how that's doing. So it's nice to see Soli hanging on to some of yeah. that stuff, and and it's great quality stuff because I've gone there and shopped. Yeah, yeah. Um, to to knock on to the land consolidation though, it's really interesting. You don't really get a real feel for how much uh, our farms have. Sw- slipped into smaller and smaller hands, a number of hands, until you look at uh, land maps, plat maps mm-hmm. from the 1880s, 80, 1860s. Mm-hmm. You can find them online, and there'll be, you know, you'll see these parcels of land. And it was rare to see uh, 200, 300 acres where it wasn't a couple people owning it because you just couldn't farm. You couldn't farm 300 right, acres yeah, all by yeah. yourself. No. Yep. So. It's really and you, a lot of things have changed in that regard. Yeah. yeah. And you needed you needed your kids. I was listening to a comedian and he was like, Man, if if we don't do the chores, we get grounded. Farm kids, if they don't do the chores, the bank forecloses on the farm. And it's like obviously that's not true anymore, but there was like a time where that that, that was real. Everybody had to pitch in. Yeah, every, yeah. But what's cool is that today kids don't um they, not that they don't pitch in. They don't have to pitch in just because of the technology we have and things like that. Uh, but Riley looked around and said, I find it reasonable. I want to do this hard work. And a lot of times they, you know, the kids get interested in other stuff. You know, farming doesn't always overlap well with sports or, you know, all, all sorts of reasons. But for whatever reason, you decide, no, I, I want this. Uh, I want to be a part of this. And you were saying because you loved being connected to it and, and you didn't want it you wanted to have it in a form that wasn't fully changed from what you remembered it. Well, the the reasoning behind that too was when we talk about what's changed and listening to previous podcasts, which obviously go back, listen to previous podcasts. I appreciate that. If you listen to some of the Coffee Time podcasts and stuff, I was listening to one the other day where you were talking to some old timers and they were talking about like, oh, people taking out fence rows and stuff like that. That's even something that I can recognize from my mm-hmm. lifetime, you know, mm-hmm. and seeing the amount of possible habitat lower. And it's it's just something that we need to kind of keep being aware of because yeah. it's yeah. every year we lose hedgerows and fence rows and stuff like that. And um, the CRP program has been hugely helpful in that regard. But yeah. still, you know, yeah. there's a need for actual habitat out there yeah Yeah, absolutely i was thinking the other day i think sometimes people question if crp is worth it and a good question for them would be okay let's for a second here imagine what it'd be like if you could snap your fingers and all the crp was gone and it was replaced with with uh crops what would what would everything look like and I just cannot imagine a good scenario for that. You know, yeah. what, how desperate our water quality problem, I would say it already is, but, but, uh, how much worse our water quality would be. There'd be no wildlife, almost none. Um, there, you know, the, you know, we're talking about the, the effect or how, what prairie's role is with uh, climate change, man, if you had no prairie, that would it would just be you can't even imagine it so yeah i agree we have to we have to fight for those places that are left 
boost the programs that are still going. We we haven't talked about this one in a long time, Nick, but uh, the American Grasslands Conservation Act. Oh, yeah, of 2022. Yeah. We can't forget about that. You know, it's still in Email the... your representatives. Yep, still in the, the basement part of, of uh, you know, getting a bill passed, but... Uh, it'll it'll start popping up more here soon, I'm sure, and you know, so there's hope on the horizon for that too. But I I totally agree. Now, I got to imagine, Ryan, when you're getting into this, your family. Well, first of all, there's probably a lot of challenges, right? Of, I mean, you're you're you had experience with cows, but bison are a different, a, a completely a, different animal. Yes, yeah, literally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So. I mean, the challenges you faced, acceptance from your family with doing this. I mean, can you kind of like put that, explain sure. that? For sure. Us? So I think, um, I think it was just a general, uh, I didn't have to convince my family. My family's extremely supportive. I, that's great. I can sit here confidently and say that I would not be here if it were not for them. Mm-hmm. The, the support that they gave me and continue to offer is the reason that uh, this is still working, mm-hmm. and so that's awesome. I I have nothing but good things to say. Everybody's like, "Oh, well, did you have to like, you know, hold your family hostage to convince them and stuff like that?" You know, like it's a really really foreign concept. But they, in that regard, I was super lucky that they were super supportive. Skeptical would be a good, you know, when somebody says to you, "I want to go raise." like something very exotic like that sounding you're like okay well that's great like you can do it but can you make any money is there a market for that yeah how does that work and my answer to that was just that if you look back in history um what was here before corn corn's a grass but there was grass here and stuff ate grass and that turned into food you know it provided for people for millions of years it's not a concept that a lot of people think about now because we're so caught in the now, but it it provided for us then and it created the rich soils that we are still enjoying. Mm-hmm. So it's it wasn't that far-fetched of an idea and it just kind of, I just tried to convince and, and having other people out there doing it too is helpful because you could say, oh, well, this person in Northern Iowa is doing it and they've been in business for at least 10 years. Right. So yeah. s- something has to work, right? Someone's buying it from them. Yeah. Yeah. There's a way to get rid of it somehow, man. That that's fascinating. So, so basically your parents had, or not necessarily parents, your, your family had some raised eyebrows, but, uh, were kind of determined to, um, help you succeed it practically has anyone kind of stepped in? Do they like help you do the chores? I don't even know what yeah, bison um, chores are like. It's, I have, um, a lot of help from my dad. Um, he has obviously the experience that I don't, you know, being a young Mm -hmm. guy starting, I started when I was 21. Wow. So I just, there's just things you don't know. There's just things you can't foresee. And his experience raising livestock was just really helpful in giving me a, kind of like an idea board to bounce off of. I'd be like, mm. oh, well, should we build a fence here? And he's like, well, what if we don't build a fence here, but we'd put it here, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just super helpful. Yeah. Um, and then he helps out when I, you know, um, don't have an idea for something, all kinds of things like that. You know, I'm sure 
It's just... Uh, Did he see the value in Bison right away? I don't know. Um, I'd have to ask him. He always seemed very supportive, but just wasn't sure. He'd ask me. He's like, okay, so here, you're going to buy these animals. Now, what are we going to do with them? You know, and then I'd think like, okay, well, I got to do this. I got to do that. And it just became part of, it was kind of like an open dialogue almost, yeah. you know, just yeah. a conversation that we kept having. And because I asked him beforehand, it's not like I grabbed a bunch of Buffalo and like yeah, dropped him on his up. land. Yeah. 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 There was some discussions ahead of time. Yeah. So did the, did the value you thought bison would bring to the farm, did that match up with what they actually ended up bringing? I'm not just talking monetary, just anything they brought to the farm in you guys' lives. What Did you have a good idea of what it would bring? I did not think that it would bring as much value, like Kent said in the beginning, of like this National Geographic moment. In my <laughs> mind, In my mind, we had pasture that was open, and if I could introduce an animal that was native to the area, the climate, all this kind of good stuff, we could create meat and value and do nutrient cycling stuff like that and get mm. a productive turn out of that land. Yeah. My my view on it was that we could bring something to the farm that would add value and might make the ground better. Yeah. What I didn't anticipate though either was the ecosystem services that they provide because our our pastures are a lot of cool season stuff, a mm-hmm. lot of yep. um Smooth brome and Kentucky blue, that kind of Kentucky blue, orchard grass, Mm, stuff like that, that isn't uh, necessarily like the native for this area. So when we have a pasture like that, that all grew up, it doesn't have quite as much room for biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really clicked when I was at the Iowa Prairie Conference, shout out there in February, they had, I'm going to bite my tongue here and say, I can't remember his name. He manages the Les Hills. Um, Lance? No. Lance uh, he managed the Les Hills Park. Oh, uh, um, Chad uh, Gravy? Maybe. Was he tall, thin? Ye- maybe. I'm not sure. Was he older? Or yes. was he like Kent's age? He was older not than Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, but he, he said something that really resounded with me. He said that they were managing bison. He talked about how they move them around and stuff like that. And he showed a picture, and I think you can actually see his presentation on the Iowa Prairie Network's YouTube page, maybe. Hmm, okay. And uh, he showed a hillside with bison on it, and the grass looked kind of short. He said, so what do you guys think of this picture? And everyone's like, oh, the grass is really short. That's really bad because they're going to have erosion and stuff like that. And he he said, well, actually, while those points are valid, the other thing you have to take into consideration is habitat. Lots of birds like quail and things like mm-hmm. that don't want all tall grass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're creating pockets of habitat for different species. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I... I didn't think about when we got into it. I was like, let's get Buffalo. I wasn't like, Oh, which habitats are we going to see? Which species yeah. are we going to see? Yeah. That brings up another question here. Cause you're, you're hitting on, this is going off script here, but, but we've talked about this before with, uh, Todd Bogenschutz, who is also on the second episode of the prehistoric Prairie series that just released today. 
uh, episode 77. But uh, we'll have a full length with Todd talking about this more. And Nick and I have talked about this before on the podcast, the story of the jackrabbit in Iowa and how bison paved the way for jackrabbits. Literally. Yeah. They paved the way. Right. And so have you, because there are very, very few jackrabbits left in our state, especially in this neck of the woods. However, if you look at the uh, recorded sightings map, Jasper County makes it. Um, have you ever seen any uh, jackrabbits in your bison pasture? Unfortunately, I just see cottontails at this point. I'm keeping my eyes peeled. I actually have uh, a document where I keep species, plant and animal species that I don't remember seeing pre-having bison oh, here. Oh, that is wow. cool. That because is cool. that is like... That is cool. I nerd out on this stuff. Um, I'm going to shout out. You actually introduced me to this book, um, Kent. The uh, country. It's so called full. A Country So Full of Game oh, okay. by yeah, James yeah, yeah. Dinsmore, I yep. believe his name Dr. is. Dinsmore, yep. And reading books like that and also the Iowa State University has some interesting articles online talking about like where bison used to be, where different animals used to be. And so that's kind of become a a side passion of mine almost mm-hmm. is like looking at what flowers I'm seeing, what species I'm seeing. Are we seeing more of this, more of that that we weren't seeing previously? Um, That's awesome. Really, really interests me. So I'm keeping, I'll keep an eye peeled for the jackrabbits. Haven't seen them yet, but I'm not counting them out. I'm not yeah. counting them out. Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope you do. Um, I'd love to see that document yeah, as the yeah. years. That when, would be Yeah. Really if cool. you wouldn't mind sending us just like a, picture of that thing and we'd yeah be, I'll, we'd uh, to, I'll i'll hook you up we'd be we'd be happy to post it or something like yeah. that but that is that is uh so cool that you're doing that and keeping an eye out like that i think that that's the kind of mindset you know we keep we keep talking about but in our second episode of the series uh taylor keen kind of talked about how the indigenous people living on the prairie they lived they part or he said they participated with the prairie they were is this idea of coming alongside of instead of you know replacing you know i'm going to come in here and make things how they should be you know it's more like okay what's the prairie doing how can i fit into that and that's what you're doing when you're looking at that what is this what are these bison providing so i think that i think that's awesome obviously people got to be wondering about some very literal challenges with having bison fencing um I imagine when it's uh, calving season for bison, you don't just walk up to a mama, bi- you know, buffalo and be like, oh, here, how can I help? You know? Yeah, <laughs> you don't offer a hand. You, you don't offer a hand. Yeah, I mean, like, they're dangerous, giant animals. You know, a cow could have its way with us if it, it you know, it could crush us if it wanted to. Now, talk about something that could crush a cow, you know? the, the, the There's obviously some very very real considerations here that are totally different than any other kind of livestock that uh, people are managing. So can you kind of give us, you know, like maybe just a real quick rapid fire on like fencing and calving and stuff like that? Vet calls. Um, I can't give you a rapid fire on the fencing because the fencing varies from producer to producer. Some guys build a fortress and some guys, um, are remarkably lax. It's like it's like fencing for cattle. <laughs> yeah. you, you'll see some guys will really go for it and build tall fencing. But 
we know about lax fencing for cattle. Yeah, <laughs> we feed a lot of cows that aren't ours here at uh, Hoxie yeah. Seeds. The the most important thing that I ever heard a a lady who was in the bison business say <laughs> was, "You're not keeping the bison in; you're keeping the bison happy because." <laughs> Any wow. a beef cow, bison, buffalo, whatever you want to say, they're all very large animals. Like you can have good fencing in it, it would, you know, keep them in a place. But if they're constantly testing your fence, it means that there's something wrong with with what mm. you're doing. Mm. And which that's that's something we always look at. Like I, we have fencing get broken. What happens usually is we have bison grazing up close to a fence, and one of them will gently push the other one and that one will get surprised and they'll lift their head up and their horn will hook on a wire and they'll snap a wire and then you know they'll just run off and yeah, later just i'll by come casually along lifting their head yeah, <laughs> yeah. so i'll Oops, come along just later and have that. to fix it and stuff but it's you're not gonna if you don't provide a good habitat and a good place for them to be they're gonna go looking for what they need that's a great answer as far as like calving and stuff very hands off, very hands off because they are dangerous and they're protective and they have naturally something that we've changed in cattle obviously is we want really, really large calves so we can feed them really, really fast. Mm-hmm. The bison business is not like that. Some people are kind of pushing that way, but for the most part, natural um, bison calves are usually born at, I want to say like maybe 40 pounds. I haven't weighed one yet. <laughs> But that's what I've been told. And with a smaller birthing weight like that, they're much smaller. So your chances for complications are much less. Mm. And so I've never, we've had a lot of calves. I don't know. I want to say at least 30. And uh, I've never, I've never gone out there and helped. Are you, um, well, one, are, are, are they chill with you being around? Like how how close can you be? It's a familiarity thing. If just like any animal, if you if you let cattle go in three thousand acres and you don't touch them for six months and you come up, they're going to be spooked because they're not used to seeing you around. But yeah. if you're out there every day checking fence or working on stuff, they'll get very very calm with you. Some guys will um, try and pet them and stuff like that. I I don't bother. Yeah. I would, I always treat them with, you know, that that respect that if they're having a bad day, I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna be up close to them, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not yeah. gonna be their target. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dad had knew a guy uh, that uh, had a pet bison and one and for years hung out with his bison. And then one year or one day just gorged him. Didn't didn't kill him. Gore 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 gored. Yeah, gore. gore. Oh, yeah. gorge you. means like you eat a ton. So if you got to eat dude. bison. <laughs> I'm very familiar with that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that would be kind of weird. Uh, herbivores. I thought they were herbivores. <laughs> oh, what a horrifying thought. Uh, so, he, the, finish the story. Did the guy survive? Yeah, yeah. He, he survived. He, he was chill. It, but it, like, beat him into the ground. And then oh, his uh, broke, broke ribs, his ribs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah, broke his leg, I think. But, yeah. No, he's chill. He doesn't have the bison anymore. Poor guy. No, he was not for better or for worse with that um, but so, so they're pretty chill with you. What, when, cause Bob Jackson never, ever slaughters in field. He always brings them out of the field. That way yeah, they don't let, get the stress. Let's, let's first, you know, our listeners know 
who Bob Jackson is, and I think I think Riley does from previous conversations. But sure. maybe if you're new to listening into this podcast, and just to to be fair here and to both Bob and Riley, uh, you have done some business with Bob in the past, right? Yeah, I um I actually bought a breeding bull off of Bob a couple years back. Awesome. Yeah, to just kind of spread my genetics out. Yeah, and it's a small world, you know. When you need, if you need another breeding bull, there's like, you know, there's not that many people in the state who have them, so you gotta get yeah. to know. It's a small club. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was he was a ranger in Yellowstone mm-hmm. for a long time, and now he does bison. He's he is the geezer of bisons. He's uh, been doing it a long time, but uh, also the guru. And uh, he's he's uh, uh, you just called him a geezer. Yeah, <laughs> I, I called him a geezer to his face. We're we're chums with Bob. Yeah, we like Bob. Yeah, so. Uh, yeah, Bob is is awesome. We have two episodes, sixties, something like that, yeah. right, Nick? Down in the sixties, maybe high fifties for those episodes. Back to back, though, just uh, as Nick said, just an incredible person. But, but yeah, that. So, if you want to hear about the total slaughtering process that Nick mentioned, you can go back and listen to those episodes. But yeah, so like what Nick was saying, Riley is, do you, do you kind of do that the same way Bob does? I um, slightly. Uh, I'll field harvest if I'm going to field harvest a bison, then I will, uh, do it. Obviously the whole point of it is as quickly as cleanly as possible. That way you're not exposing them to that excess stress of, uh, handling transport, stuff like that, that Mm -hmm. you're going to go through when you take like an animal to a large slaughterhouse and stuff like that. But if we're doing field harvest, basically the name of the game is quick, um, clean and get the experience over with because it it is stressful and Mm -hmm. it is it's beneficial to um to do it in different pastures and the hard part is i really admire the way that bob does it it can just be difficult logistically every operation's different and well because the other part of it is not just the actual getting it done he he is full full application of his uh, philosophy of family groups, which it, there's, I mean, you see the way his operation works. Like, yeah, you're onto something here, Bob. And uh, um, you and I have talked about this before. Bob is a pretty large herd. Yours is not as large as Bob. So that's sure. the family group slaughter method is, is more challenging on a smaller operation, right? If I did a family order slaughter, I would have no animals left. <laughs> you have, have one I have family. one family. <laughs> yeah. So oh, man. the way that we do it is if we're going to slaughter an animal for for meat purposes, they're usually a, a younger bull that has started to split off from the herd. So how those herd dynamics, I don't know if Bob covered it or not. I can't quite remember. Yeah, yeah I think he did, yep. But just like any herbivore herd animal they start to kind of around that two to three year kind of maturity mark start to split off and do their own thing you know Mm -hmm. they're stretching their legs and uh figuring out how big they are and pushing everybody around stuff like that so they're not like hanging out in the middle of the herd and stuff like that so it just kind of it takes some of the stress out of it like i said it's not perfect we're dealing in shades of gray but uh, it reduces the stress on them and it allows you to harvest an animal quick and get it out of there and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, it 
it's the same way. There's I'll shout out uh, Wild Idea Buffalo out in South Dakota. Yeah. That's how they do it. They're um, they're another huge influence on me. And uh, I actually went to them too, and I emailed them. South Dakota is a little far from me at the yeah. time. <laughs> I couldn't travel as much as I wanted to, so. But uh, that's how they do it too, and so I kind of tried to make a fusion of the two methods, and uh, you know, mixed results. Obviously, you're going to try things and they don't work, and yeah, go back to the drawing board. But so would you? I mean, is your herd then? While we're on the topic, is it about the size that you would? you would like it to be forever or someday would you like to have a multiple family group operation? I would love to have a multifamily group of, uh, uh, or multifamily operation, but it's kind of dependent on those like bigger picture things that we're just kind of not quite to yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Land cons- uh, consideration, yep. stuff yep. like that. You know, I, I'm really happy with where we're at right now because we have the one unit and it's, um, a really tight knit group. And I don't introduce working. animals into it and it's working and it, it works really well now, but it, we're starting to kind of tip up against the limits of the ground we've got. Yeah. And so you have to take in practical considerations. Like I always like to think I want to do my philosophy is always to do the best thing I can by the animal. That's why we try and do field harvest. That's why we, if I'm going to do like live sale and stuff like that, we try and take members of the herd that are, you know, kind of on the out stuff like that. Mm. But if you have a, a, a nice family group, it's really great. But if you hit a drought year and you don't have any grass, it's bad for the whole family. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. there's a lot of practical considerations that it's easy from the outside to kind of point a figure and go, well, this guy is not being considerate and he's doing things wrong and stuff like that. But if you don't have grass, it's it's tough on everything, mm. and it's tough on the land yeah. too. Mm-hmm. You know what grass grows during these droughts? Big bluestem and little bluestem. Your fields look beautiful. I passed Thank them on you. the way over here. Everything looks great. Yeah, <laughs> no, we, actually, last year our big bluestem field was terrible. It was like the worst I've ever seen it. But I mean, the grass. But we imitated bison grazing it this yeah, year. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we did we, our best to basically clomp on it and burn it and rip it. Yeah, and I mean, chew that's, on it. That's, Kent went out there and chewed on every stalk of grass. It's dedication. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had to eat a lot of nestles so I could have the same body weight as a bison. Yeah, here at Hoxie, we believe in, in quality. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, it's they're all real considerations that you brought up there. You know that that limits it and. Uh, um, you even hit one of our other questions, which is the barriers to growth. And I think that land is probably that, uh, that primary thing. And, you know, one of the things that we like to, I don't know, wave out there to some of our guests on the podcast is when we're talking about these species that used to be native here that are long gone from here. I mean, long gone. Is there any chance in your mind, after getting to know bison really well, of there being free-ranging bison in a place that is so chopped up by private landowners, for one, so you don't really have these you know, big national parks or something, where we have so much intense agriculture? Do you think there's any realistic way that we could have bison free ranging. I think that that is 
possible, but it's going to require a lot of different people from different walks of life coming together on it. Uh, bison are very large, like you touched on, and it's like cattle. You know, you're, you don't want to be, oh, I have to go to Casey's at night, and then you go out and there's a buffalo on the road. You know, there's, yeah, there's, yeah. there's practical considerations that a lot of people, I think there's actually a, a group that is trying to recreate a multi-state kind of free-ranging bison yep, population. American Prairie Reservation. Yes, the American, yeah, yep. They are trying that, and I think that there's real potential there. I just don't, I don't quite know. With them being so large and the potential for crop damage, stuff yeah. like that, in our current system, I see, I see a way forward if we've got landowners who are working together like you've, let's say you've got three landowners who are all really, really passionate about carbon mm-hmm. sequestration, who are really passionate about um, bringing back our prairies. Then you could kind of line them up, and you could do rotational stuff and yeah. have larger populations. But as for like free ranging, like oh, there's a bison herd in South Dakota, and it comes to Iowa in the winter. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, it's yeah. it can be a tough sell. There's so, potential. Yeah, something we don't like to do is make it about money we end up talking a lot about money we don't always like to make it about money but a very money pointed question has bison for you guys been profitable enough where you've got 40 acres now and and um you guys farm other um conventional farming around where you could take not the best flattest great ground but you could take some of the other marginal ground and add it as pasture has it that's a great question turnover for per acre Yes and no. So the when I got started, I was super excited, and we had you know pasture ground, which is not productive, and crop ground, obviously. And I thought, well, we can extend this. There, you know, there's some marginal ground around us. Maybe you know, when I hit thirty, something like that, something will come up for sale, and I can buy it. But when I thought that land cost. I want to say $6,800 an acre mm-hmm. on average. And yeah. now we're itching close to 10000 in the county yeah. from what I can tell. Oh, nine, yeah. nine to 10000 Yeah, and that's Obvi- for marginal stuff. And yeah. obviously, yeah, it depends on your CSR and stuff like yeah. that. But it it's very daunting. Uh, I think that there is a way forward. I think that with help from stuff like carbon uh, carbon credits and stuff like that, you can kind of level the playing field a little bit. But... Uh, it's it is profitable but not in the short term the thing you have to remember too is when you ask somebody if they're productive or if they're profitable in livestock it's it's so loaded because if you start with nothing if you go out and you buy 50 meat chickens or not meat chickens isn't a good example but if you buy something that takes years to reproduce you're going to take years to get back that original investment. I'd say mm. that I will be profitable at some point. I'm very confident. Mm-hmm. But it it's not something you can dump money in and see it come back. Yeah. I didn't see any profits from our business in the first three years. Yeah, mm. The first three years was all building. Yeah. And that's something that I was lucky enough to be yeah. able to do, but not everybody is. That's actually new. That's new in um, human history to uh, plant something, harvest it the same year, 
and turn around and make it where where farms can you can buy a farm in March and that same year yeah. you can you can already be productive. That's not that's like a not a normal human society thing. There's usually you know for thousands of years we're ripping out trees. You know, just manpower Rocks. one yeah. person a day on a tree. You know, and and that would you know take decades sometimes to uh, remove some areas. Yep, bunch of rocks. Well, the um, so like prairie was the same for dad, right? There's there was like investment in buying the seed. It's not going to come up the first year, so you at the very least have to float two years, and then like not, like maybe that year it doesn't sell. The market's a lot more volatile than. Like corn and beans can be volatile. I don't. I don't want to take away from you know the pressure farmers feel for for those crop. But the uh, we sold something this year for fifteen dollars a pound that Dad has sold for one hundred and eighty dollars a pound in the past. Wow. Yeah. So it, it and it it wasn't like oh all of a sudden the market was flooded with a ton of it. It was just eh, we don't really want it anymore. Like that that was just kind of the general attitude about it for for no real reason and. And that's okay. That's why, you know, we do tons and well, that's not the only reason we do tons and tons of species, but that's one of the benefits when I am being like, why the heck do we do so many species? And Ken has to clean up yeah. the combine. He spends like 20 full days of work cleaning up the combine. And, <laughs> not uh, that many. well, think about it. If, if you got three hours per clean out, no, it doesn't take three hours. No. All right. That, that mach- oh, sorry. That machine, that machine kicks off after uh, t- 10 minutes of run time. Yeah. <laughs> it gets too hot. Sorry. I'm thinking also the, not just the combine, the cleaner. Oh, So yeah, between yeah. cleaning out yeah. the cleaner and the combine between now every you're, species. Yeah, now you're and you got 40 something, 50 species. You're, you're at days and days of work, yeah. you know? And I'm like upset about that. I'm like, but variety, there's safety in variety. Yeah. Just like a well. prairie, you know? Yeah. The, the more diverse, the healthier it is. You know, R- Riley, probably the biggest point to take away from here, all this is just so cool to yeah. talk about. It's, it's just awesome. But probably the biggest point we want to take away from here, and I mentioned this at the beginning, you're doing it. You're, you're, you're farming and you're a young guy. And um, I think there's a false narrative, an excuse, I'll even call it, that is, that is peddled out there probably mostly by guilty consciences. I'll, I'll, I'll stop right there because I'll get myself in, in more trouble uh, if I continue on what I'm saying. Uh, but that, oh, the young people just don't want to do it. They don't, they don't care about farming. They don't want anything to do with it. They just want to play video games and sleep till 1 p.m. And they don't, they're afraid of hard work. And, they're, and sure, there's people like that, but there's old people like that too. And there's kind of in the middle people like that. And and uh, there's also a lot of young people who grew up around farming, maybe even got to taste it a little bit. Maybe their grandparents farmed or maybe they they grew up on a farm, but their family had to sell it, you know, when they were in high school or something. They would have loved to farm, you know. I used to be a, a high school teacher, and uh, I had students that wanted to farm, you know. And it's so hard for them to get into it, but you, you were able, you were able to do that. And everyone's got their own different set of circumstances. So obviously not one size fits all, but, um, what would be your word of encouragement to those people who are younger, who are facing these, these just monstrous land costs, equipment expenses, all of that. What would your word of encouragement be to to them to 
keep their hopes up and, and try and get in? I would say for people who are looking around who want to get in that aren't, I would say look around at the people in your area. Mm. Start doing some searching. Mm. There are people, they might not be advertising it super heavy, but there's probably a guy in your neighborhood who's got some goats that are eating stuff under a tree. Mm. Y- you know, there there are people who are doing it that aren't talking about it a lot because they're busy yeah. doing it. Yeah. And these people are really gracious. They're really happy to tell you, for the most part, you know, what works, what doesn't. And the, I think the worst thing you can do is assume that to get into farming, you have to have a thousand acres. Yeah. You see a mm. lot of people say, well, how much of a loan do I need to do this and to do that? I, when I started with Buffalo, I started with six Buffalo. It mm. cost money, of course, but I didn't go out and buy a, a ton of animals and a ton of this and a ton of that because when you start something, farming is a business, and when you start a business, you don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. So the best thing you can do is start small and learn along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say don't get discouraged. Look around and start small. You can always change things up and and uh, go from there. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think that's the other part of it is I think – you're right. You're spot on with what you said. We feel like we have to have a thousand acres. No, you don't just make it a side job to start, start out, just start building, you know, and building and building and saving. And, uh, if you want to grow prairie in your yard and sell it to us, we will buy it for real. Give us a call. Like there, there are options is is my point. Like you can start in your yard and bring it to the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's ways in that aren't just going from zero to a, you know, to 100. It's, it's an incremental process, like Riley said. Well, it's funny because I don't know where the idea came from. I couldn't, I couldn't blame it on one person. But when you hear, like, if I talk to my dad or my grandpa, when they started, they didn't start with a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously yeah. farms are, or have been in his, history's past, an intergenerational thing. Mm-hmm. Somebody started with 10 acres. And they sold eggs to their neighbor, and then that bought them a goat, and then they sold that goat, and they bought a pig. You know, yeah. wow, it, come on! It yeah. it always starts from somewhere, and the the idea that if you want to start farming, you got to start with a million acres, then you're just going to be stressing because you got a million acres trying yeah. to figure out if you're yeah. doing it right. You know, make yeah. mistakes, small mistakes, you can recover from. You know, take advantage of that and grow and take the time. Yeah. That is so good. That is literally exactly what Skip taught us to do, but with buying and flipping land. But yeah. you're talking about farming, uh, which to me is more interesting. Sorry, Skip. Uh, <laughs> but no, it, Skip, I'm, I'm right there with you, buddy. But like the flipping land it's idea. Like, it's like nobody can afford to be 25 and, and mess up big time on 1,500 acres. Right. Nobody. You right. have to be farming for 30 years and save money all 30 of those years to have a big uh-oh. You got a big uh-oh on 20 acres? Ah, you know? That's yeah. a cup, that might be a year problem. Yeah. I had, I had an older guy, an older gentleman, that when I started my business, I was kind of joking with him. You know, I said, well, I'm doing this, but I don't even know if this is going to work or not. I'm just kind of playing around. And he said, well, you're young. He said, you can mess up a couple more times. You still have yeah. a couple. You can start over, you know, yeah, reinvent yeah. yourself. Yeah, and that was kind of like a a moment for me where I went, wow, well, I guess I can. I mean, you know, it, yeah. if you if you don't have everything in one basket, you've got room to kind of yeah. uh, wander around a little bit and figure out what works and what doesn't. 
Yeah, I, very well said. I help run Hoxie Native Seeds, and my wife and I uh, are running a real estate business that is doing better now. But before that, I have started seven registered businesses that just flunked out. They failed. The very first one, I think I had $120 into it, and it like didn't make a dollar. You know what I mean? But it, was, it started it was, really small. It was called Nick's Invisible Clothes. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah, but Ken actually... Kept getting arrested. We, <laughs> Ken kept asking for the clothes for free. It was really weird. <laughs> no, but, but the, uh, the point is, like, you, if you start small, you, you can make these mistakes. And I wish, I wish people... And I think people say that a lot, right? They say, oh, you want to do a hobby, anything you want to do, do it. Just start, you know, just start, just um, do it. But you're talking about specifically with farming and it's crazy. We've been, we're 70, we're 80 something episodes recorded in and I uh, have never heard anybody else say that. Start, start farming, but start, start small. I yeah. love that. Well, if you look around, if you look around right now, it's, it's kind of what gives me a little bit of hope is all over YouTube and stuff and this kind of homesteading craze. Everybody's talking about, oh, yeah. I want to build a homestead. And yeah. it people think about like that like you've got to buy a bunch of land. Let's say you live in the city and you want to live in the country. Go buy a house with an acre and mm-hmm. then put three goats on that acre. Yeah. All of a sudden, you, you, you're not a farmer really per se, but you're starting. You're yeah. experimenting. You're, you're learning a lesson with three goats you're going to need when you've got yeah. a thousand goats. Yeah. yeah, or get chestnuts on there, or something. You know, do something. Have eggs, chicks and chickens and eggs. It'd be weird to just have eggs, just like just straight up <laughs> eggs. Yeah. Nothing else. Where are they coming from? <laughs> Apparently, the eggs came first. But I, someone said this to me in college, and I think it's a popular saying. I don't know, but I, I say this to my friends all the time. The difference between people that do something and the people who don't do something is the people who do something do something. So. Get yeah. up and do something. Don't don't complain about not being able to get into farming. I promise you there is some avenue in. Some people might have it better than you, but man, get up and do something. Yeah. But, and it's not a competition either. Yeah. Everybody always looks and they say, well, my neighbor has more ground and my neighbor has a bigger tractor than I do. Stuff yeah. like that. Do your own thing. There's, yeah. Nothing, yeah. there's nothing wrong with being the guy with the small tractor on the block. You know, yeah. it's just, yeah. it's, it's about seeing what other people can't. People are scared to try something because they think, well, what if I fail? You know, if you if you look and you say, well, what if something works? Even just a little bit. You know, if you can see what other people can't, that's the difference between doing something and you know, sitting at home and twiddling your fingers and going, yeah. I can't I can't yeah. do nothing. I yeah. can't do anything, yep. can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, very well said. This has been a great episode. Yeah, this uh, is a lot of fun. Um, just as uh, we've been talking through all of this, I hope you are inspired. Of course, that is the goal of the podcast is to uh, educate people on prairie and the species that belong there. And hopefully that's inspirational to you. And uh, inspiration sparks action. And uh, so if you're wanting to do something, um, hopefully you can be in a position to, uh, you know, start maybe a little garden or start uh, raising some livestock or something like that, or maybe taking your operation a step further. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, doing it the, the right way, not cutting corners and all of that. Um, but, uh, you know, another th- aspect to that is you could plant some prairie. And so uh, if you would like to check out our websites, you can find them in the show notes, hoxynativeseeds.com or the prairiefarm.com. And you can uh, order some prairie 
uh, seed for your own yard. Uh, it won't be long before the fall dormant seeding time of year is upon us. So, I know, so man. you can start, uh, you know, mapping out where you want stuff to be done and start treating the ground uh, so that it'll be ready for that. Although it's getting kind of late for uh, preparing your spot, you'd have to have some. You'd have to have some uh, bare dirt already ready to go. Give us a call. We'll, we'll yeah, help, yeah, we'll we help walk you, out. you through. Your yeah, situation we'll could through. be could be unique. But wait, uh, but, were you gonna ask Riley where they could find them? Oh yes, good, good, great question. So uh, Riley, uh, people listening in, they might want some bison meat. Maybe they just want to see more about your operation. What are uh, what's the best way for people to find you? Uh, the best way for people to find us, we've got a Instagram and a Facebook page just called Iowa Prairie Bison. Um, we've got a lot of photos on there and stuff like that. My wife takes a lot of photos awesome. and manages that kind of stuff. Cool. We'll and link it in the bottom of the yeah. yeah put our it in our the website has some contact stuff as well. So if you have any questions, emails, I think there's an email and then stuff as well. You can message the Facebook stuff like that. Awesome, yeah. So definitely check that out. As Nick said, we'll we'll load that into the show notes, and uh, you should definitely follow. They have good content, great logo too, by the way. Yeah, thank and, you. And uh, and Nick Nick is probably uh, really uh, envious of your SEO uh, friendly name. Yeah, Iowa, Iowa Prairie, Prairie, Prairie Bison. Bison. Good I wish we were called Iowa Native Seeds. <laughs> then, man, imagine the Google clicks we would get. Yeah, that's there's there's uh, there's some uh, some some genius names out there, but but no, we thank you for uh, listening into this podcast and uh, share it with those around you. Leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Share it with friends and family. Uh, we really do believe in what we're doing here. We believe it's got the power to change minds, which is important because conservation happens one mind at a time. <laughs>